All right, welcome to day 50 of Journey Through Scripture. Today we're looking at Exodus chapters 25 and 26, Psalm 23, and then Mark chapter 4, verse 30, through chapter 5, verse 20. Okay, um, so we just saw the, the covenant um, established with the people, um, and, and Moses, at the end of chapter 24, was called up to the summit of Mount Sinai, where he is for 40 days and 40 nights. And uh, then we are told how God gave him the instructions for constructing the tabernacle. Um, now, the tabernacle, what is this? So uh, there's a lot of stuff we could say about it, but um, it is essentially the place where the Israelites were to worship God prior to their settlement in the land. So it is uh, fitting, especially as they're uh, mobile, going throughout the wilderness, um, it's somewhat of a prototype of what will eventually be the temple. It is uh, also to be marked apart from the rest of the the camp, the 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 mass of the people of Israel as being a particularly holy spot. It is uh, Israel's sacred space, meaning that this is where God is going to be among them. Remember the the uh, promise that he made to Abraham, right? That um, I will be their God and they will be my people. And so God is going to now be among them. And this is indeed what he says as he sets out to give them the instructions, right? He says uh, here right towards the beginning in chapter 25, verse 8, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Um, But the thing to keep in mind, of course, is that God, as we have already seen, is is establishing himself as holy, that is, separate from them. Uh, he, is, he is intimately connected with his people, he is taking them to himself, but there is a sense in which he is uh, other, he's not one of us. Uh, he is above us, he is greater than us, and even coming into his presence is... Uh, fraught with, as I think we've already seen at Mount Sinai, a certain level of danger. And uh, this is uh, this would be the case uh, even if we were not uh, sinful, that, uh, that, that, that God is just by virtue of his greatness, by virtue of his glory, but the fact that we are uh, rebellious against him, that we all consciously sin against God and reject God uh, many, many times um, in every single day, Right, that um, it makes it so that that we are unable to actually dwell in God's presence, uh, and yet dwelling among us is something that God desires to do. So, how is that going to happen? Well, eventually, that happens in Jesus Christ. Uh, but now, at this point in history, um, we are given the first picture of that. We're given the first picture of what God will eventually accomplish. And not only is it a picture, uh, but it's also, um, there's something about the entire structure of Israelite worship, which of course is centered around the tabernacle and around the temple. There's something about that that calls out and longs for something more, okay? Because recall what was lost in the garden. What was was lost is this perfect fellowship between God and and, and man. Um, Remember how God is described in chapter 3 as walking in the garden in the cool of the day, right, where man was. And you don't get a sense there that 
that there's any kind of problem with that that there's that that there's that 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 man the man and the woman are in danger or anything no that is their home that's where they live and right there as soon as sin enters into the world we're given this promise that God is going to overcome uh, human sin through the offspring of the woman back in Genesis 3:15 and our hope is that everything that he's doing in redemptive history is kind of pointing in that direction. It's going to culminate in the ultimate realization of that promise. But we're not there yet. Um, and instead, what we're given is a picture of mm, something of, of what God intends to do, that is, by, by uh, enabling us to have God... Uh, dwelling in our midst and to to be for us to be able to enter into his presence but also a very stark reminder that we are not there yet and so uh, yes god is going to dwell in the midst of the people of israel in the tabernacle uh, which in hebrew is mishkan uh, um, which is uh, formed from the verb shakan which means to dwell or to uh, even to sit sometimes so the tabernacle is his dwelling place, the place where God is, and and it's right there, smack dab in the middle of the people of Israel, but you better not even come near unless you're clean. You better, and and, and if you do, um, only certain, one, certain ones of you kind of like belong there at, at, at doing the work, and that's going to be the priest, right? And then you go, you start going into the, to the tabernacle, and you get to this inner chamber where, as we will see in the book of Leviticus, only the high priest is allowed to go. Now, it appears here that, as as we'll see, that Moses is able to do that as well, but Moses has this special relationship with God, which is emphasized, that that he, he speaks to God. He knows him as a man knows his friend. He speaks to him face to face. He has this unique relationship. But in other words, God, God is is in the midst of his people in the tabernacle, but he is holy and they are sinful. And even with this elaborate uh, sacrificial system set up, they are still not really allowed to be in his presence. It's, that still really has not yet been, been accomplished. And so it, it cries out for, for something more that God is going to do. Okay, so let's start to look at this. Um the first thing that we see is that uh, the people are to be invited to contribute to it, all kinds of precious metals and precious materials for its construction. It is not an ob- it is not they're not obligated to give to it. This is something that is to be built uh, out of contributions that are freely given. Uh, it is everyone whose heart moves him. The text says. Um, and uh, the other thing that uh, we've, I've already talked about verse 8, which is ex- uh, extraordinarily important. Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. But then right on the heels of that, it says, Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all its furniture, so shall you make it. And we will see uh, as the things are described, uh, whether it's a, you know here in general or uh Chapter 25, verse 40, this is said of the lampstand. In uh, chapter 26, verse 30, it's said of the table. In chapter 27, verse 8, it's said of the altar, that according to how I show you, and, uh, and some of those other references, uh, what I show you on the mountain, you shall, you shall make it according to that. 
And uh, so one gets the idea that Moses is seeing something in the mountain that he is to replicate now in the um, among the people of Israel, that there's, there's a pattern. And indeed, uh, there are other places in Scripture which kind of speak of like, of, of, of a heavenly tabernacle. We see this in the book of Revelation. We see it especially in the book of Hebrews um, or heavenly temple, you might like. Um, and I think the idea is that uh, you have the, the, the heavenly throne room of God depicted in various ways throughout Scripture, and that the tabernacle is supposed to be a representation of that. It's supposed that, that it, there, it corresponds to that. And exactly how exactly it corresponds to that, it's hard to it's hard to say, right? Like we're talking about the presence of God. There's there's a lot of metaphor and stuff like that that's involved. So I don't think this side of this side of heaven will really be able to know uh, what's there, what is there in God's presence. But uh, clearly, the tabernacle is to be is to be patterned off of this this uh, this forty day experience that that Moses is having in the presence of God as he is atop Mount Sinai. Now, the first thing that he is instructed to make uh, is actually not part of the tabernacle, but it's part of it. what's called its furniture, the things that are supposed to be in it, and that is the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, anyone who's seen Writers of the Lost Ark knows what this is about. This is essentially a box, and it's not that big. So, so everything that is uh, made here, um, essentially there's a couple measurements, like there's a hand breadth, a span, but the main measurement is a cubit. And the way uh, roughly to think about a cubit is that a cubit is the length of distance from the tip of your middle finger uh, to your elbow. Uh, so roughly like, I don't know, what is that, like a foot and a half or so? Um, and the arc is not that big, so it's only 2.5 cubits long, it's 1.5 cubits wide, and then it's like 1.5 uh, cubit high. So it's, it's, it's this sort of little box, and um, it's to be made as with pretty much all the, the solid parts of the tabernacle and its furniture out of acacia wood, which it turns out is quite plentiful in the Sinai Peninsula. Uh, this wood is then to be overlaid with uh, with gold, and um, there are also uh, we're also we even hear about how you're supposed to put, he's supposed to put these rings on the uh, ark in order for it to be carried by poles also made with acacia wood overlaid with gold. And the reason that's I'm emphasized, of course, is because of the holiness of these things. They're not allowed to touch it. Even the priests whose job it is to care for this stuff, they need to 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 not touch the ark and so they're to carry it when when it's time to go you carry it with these poles and then uh, inside the ark of the covenant is to be these um uh what, what the testimony that I shall give you chapter 25 verse 16 that is the tablets that I am giving giving to you um uh, a lot also is made of the covering of the ark of the covenant um so this is uh it's the, the covering is called, the cover of it is called the kaporet, um, and uh, that is translated different ways in, in the um, English translations. Sometimes it's called a mercy seat. That's, that's very common. Um, this is, a, this is a, a covering where you have two cherubim engraved on it, and cherubim are these, uh, uh, they're, 
basically like ancient Near Eastern religious iconography. We do encounter them in other cultures. Um, they're these composite animals. So like, you know, a head like a person, a uh, body like a lion, feet like a, I don't know, like a bear. Uh, you know, you kind of get the point. Wings like an eagle. These ones have wings and they're facing each other and their wings are touching each other. Um, that's essentially what they are. And interestingly, most of the time or very often when the presence of God is described in scripture, uh, these cherubim are there. Uh, they are a, a type of, of spiritual being that, uh, that guards the throne of God. And, um, and there it says, uh, from that place, I will speak with you, Moses. So this is going to be, that's why I said that it appears to be the case that Moses is allowed access to the tabernacle that pretty much nobody else will ever enjoy. Um, that is until Christ's death uh, occurs. Um, uh, now, the, the the meaning of this cover this it's it is as I said it's called a kaporet, um, mercy seat. I think a better way to to just translate it is just it is a place of atonement. Uh, that's how I would translate the uh, instead of mercy seat. I like how it's seat. It's called a seat because indeed we find throughout the Old Testament God designating Himself as uh, Yahweh of hosts who is enthroned above the cherubim. So probably the idea here is that the Ark of the Covenant is uh, uh, the invisible God's throne. Um, you know, so this is his throne room. And indeed, some of the concept of holiness appears to have definite um, definite analogs to the concept of a king's presence, right? Like you're not just allowed in whenever you want to go hang out with the king. You have to be welcomed into his presence. Um but yeah, so so I think it's better understood though. Although I do appreciate the seat imagery um, or or way of describing it, I think just place of atonement, kaporet. The 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 Hebrew word for to atone is kaper, and so this is this is taken from that word. Um, now atonement, and we'll talk more about this, basically means to wipe or to clean or to purge. There is a little bit of debate as to exactly what it means. Um, the other major candidate being something like to cover, uh, which um, it almost certainly does not mean that to cover. Um, that would be, obviously, this is a cover on the Ark, so maybe, oh yeah, it's a cover of the Ark. No, Um you find it in other ancient Near Eastern languages, particularly Akkadian, where uh, the, the word kapuru means to rub off, to purge, or to, to purify. Um, and there's a bunch of other arguments that you probably are not interested in hearing that. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's, so it probably means to wash or to cleanse. Um, and indeed, this is the place where on the Day of Atonement, which we'll read about in the book of Leviticus, uh, once a year the priest is to cleanse by sprinkling blood on it. And so the idea being that this is the place where atonement is made for the sins of the people of Israel. Okay, so then the next uh, piece of furniture that's described is the table. Um, and uh, it should be said that the only piece of furniture that is placed within the holiest area in the tabernacle is the tabernacle is essentially three areas, right? There's an outer court and... Uh, any Israelite, as long as they are ritually clean, can enter into that. Uh, but then you have the tabernacle itself, the tent itself, and in which is essentially a big rectangle, although it's not that big. 
but yeah, within the tent itself, there are essentially two rooms. There's the bigger room, uh, and in that, the priests go and do their priestly duties. Uh, but then inside, beyond that, there's another room called the Holy of Holies. So there's the holy place and then the Holy of Holies. And in that, uh, only the high priest, as we will see in the book of Leviticus, is allowed to enter. And as I said, it appears that perhaps Moses enters it as well. Um, but that is separate from the from the rest of the tabernacle. And in that place, only the Ark of the Covenant goes. In this holy place, which is inside the tent uh, where the priests can go, there are uh, three things. There's going to be a table, a lampstand, and an incense altar. And uh, another thing that's noteworthy is anything that goes inside the tent is made of gold, uh, because this is holy and holy of holies. Outside, it's still a holy area. It's just not as holy as the other places. And everything out there in the court is going to be of bronze. So there's even a, a distinction in the materials that are that are made. Um, so yeah, the the first part of this thing of, of what goes in, into that room that is described are is the table. And uh, just like the ark, though, that it has rings on it, you have to carry it with poles. And on that table is to be laid what's called the bread of the presence. So these are little, probably little loaves. Uh, we shouldn't think of them as like, a, you know, like an Italian loaf of bread. Um, again, these things are not that big. Um, but uh, these these little uh, cakes of bread, we could almost think, kind of, th I, I think of them probably more around the size of like rolls. And uh, there's 12 of them to be placed, one for each tribe. Um, perhaps communicating the idea that uh, someone is home here, right? That that the table is set and you are invited to commune to commune with this holy God. Okay. The other another piece of furniture that is in this room is the lampstand, and this is what will come to be known as the menorah. Um, and uh, this is essentially um, it's essentially a tree, right? Which is interesting. Okay. Um, and I'll say why it's interesting in a minute, but it's got a base, it's got a long stem, um, it's got uh, what's described as like cups like almond blossoms coming off of the side of the stem, but then you've got these six branches at the top um, with, um, with cups, calyxes, and flowers um, at the end of them, uh, wishers where you would light the flames and it's all made out of gold. Okay. Uh, calyx, go ahead and Google that. That's essentially the part of the flower. That's like the leafy green part that the flower buds out of that. That's what that is. Um, and yeah, and that shines light in the, uh, in, in there. And that's essentially the only, the only light that you have inside the tabernacle, which is interesting because technically then the Holy of Holies is completely dark. Um, and, uh, this is another item, by the way, that says that he's to make it after the pattern that's shown him on the mountain. Um, uh, now, uh, I said I'd mention another thing about this in a second, and, uh, this dovetails with the, the, the instruction for the actual tabernacle, uh, that we're, that is, that is next described in chapter 26. And, uh, so we're told about these curtains for it, okay, and, and, uh, and so you have these these ten curtains, uh, four four cubits wide. So the entire thing is forty cubits long. Not that long if you think of it. Again, think how long a cubit is. Forty of those, and um, and then you have coverings that go over it, made of goat's hair. Um, 
And yeah, it's kind of sometimes interesting to maybe try to draw what you see being described here. Uh, you've got the frames that are made, right, of acacia wood, again, overlaid with gold. They have bases of silver, two per frame. Um, and then you have a veil that is to separate the holy place from the most holy place. And um, on both the curtains that surround the tabernacle, that essentially form its, its fabric walls, and the veil that separates the holy from the most holy place, gets what's embroidered? Cherubim. Now, what's significant about that? Well, think about what when man when the man and the woman were expelled from the garden, what did God place to guard the entrance of the garden? A cherub, right, with a with a flaming sword, and uh, to to guard holiness. Okay, and then you come. So so then when you when you enter into the tabernacle and you get this in the temple imagery as well, you have these cherubim there. And uh, and remember what the cherub is guarding access to in the Garden of Eden. That is the tree of life. God says, lest they eat of the tree and live forever. And you come into the tabernacle, and what is there? A big golden tree, uh, the, the lampstand. And so part of the imagery is that this is uh, a regaining of what was lost in the garden. Uh, but again... Part of it is that that like you're sort of regaining, but you're also really also not regaining it. Like you're not there yet, and there's this anticipation that kind of builds from these 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 symbols and these imagery that that cry out for something more. Uh, and this is one of the ways I think in which the the Old Testament and the Old Covenant anticipate the new. That 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 we are waiting for God to do something that is that is even greater than this. All right. Let's look now to Psalm uh, twenty-three. Psalm twenty-three is a very uh, is a very uh, probably the most well-known psalm. I would say, "The Lord is my shepherd; I shall not want." So it's interesting here, right? So this is a psalm of David, and uh, here Yahweh is depicted as a shepherd, as one caring for a flock, and particularly a flock of which I am a part of. Which, well, technically David, right? But I think this is something. Uh, uh, something that kind of applies to all of God's people, right? And I, I, you essentially, like the main idea from twenty-three, from is Psalm twenty-three that you get is that God gives us. You have these images of peace, right? Like I'm, I'm lying down in green pastures. He's leading me beside still waters. The kinds of things that that a well cared for sheep does. Um, but it's and he's leading me in the paths of righteousness for His namesake. But he's doing these things in the presence of darkness and evil, like there's danger all around, and yet God gives me peace. So it isn't that he's made my life such that there's nothing to worry about, that there's no concerning things around me, like he's sheltering me so that I don't, I don't, I'm not even aware of these things. No, uh, those things are there, but God but he is there guiding me through it and giving me peace in the midst of it. So these things are true even though I walk through Tsalmavet, uh, the valley of death, the shadow of the valley of death, right? I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me, right? The rod and the staff, that's what he uses to guide the sheep and especially perhaps to pull, to pull back a stray sheep. Um, and then again, he's preparing a table before me. I'm, I'm 
ready to have a meal. I'm ready to have a fellowship. I'm ready to break bread, bread in the very presence of my enemies. But, but I'm so blessed that I can say that he anoints my head with oil and my cup is overflowing. And so even though these, these harsh realities are true, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And here is that shocking thing, especially after we just learned about holiness and like temple theology and stuff like that in, in, in the discussion of the tabernacle. I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I shall dwell in the house of Yahweh. And make no mistake, house of Yahweh, the most you know, immediate thing that that would have denoted to the Israelite, ancient Israelite, is the temple. Like, I shall dwell, and, and that, well, no, you can't. You can't dwell in the temple. Who can dwell in the temple? And, uh, but no, he, he belongs there. And interestingly, the, the people of God can kind of say that, but why can we say that? Uh, so keep in mind, it is David who is saying this. David who is saying that 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 I, God's anointed king, belong dwelling in this holy place. Okay, and then you have the ultimate David come along, Jesus. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And then we, repeating the psalm, because we are in him, because we are his, can also say, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. All right. Uh, Now let's go and look at Mark chapter uh, 4, verse 30, and we're going to chapter 5, verse 20. Uh, so uh, here, uh, the last of this uh, collection of parables, the, the kingdom of uh, heaven is like, uh, or the kingdom of God is like a, a grain of mustard seed, which is the smallest of all the seeds, but then grows and becomes large and all puts out its branches and all the birds of the air make nests in its shade. So this idea of the, the kingdom of God will inevitably grow, even though it doesn't look like much right now, um, Jesus is saying, um, and indeed we've we we are witness to this uh, the, the the kingdom of god now spreading to all nations tribes and tongues throughout the earth um the next day then um uh, jesus invites his disciples to go in a boat with him and to cross the sea of galilee and as they are out on the sea and mark makes note of saying there's actually even other ships on the sea um there becomes a great storm and the the wind and the waves get so bad that uh, they're coming into the boat and the the boat is starting to fill with water and what's Jesus doing he's asleep he's sleeping in uh in in the boat and so they get up and they're 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 saying like lord like what's going on don't you care that we're perishing and Jesus just gets up and he looks around and he says peace be still and the wind ceases and there's calm over the waters and he looks at them and he says why are you afraid have you still no faith? Like, do you think that I'm going to let harm come to you? Um, and, uh, and, and then it says that they were filled with great fear and said to one another, and we looked at this in Matthew as well, okay, who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And there I noted um, a very interesting parallel in Psalm 107, verses 23 through 32. Um, if you know your Old Testament, you know who it is that the wind and the sea obey. Okay, then he comes to the other side of the sea and to a place which um, uh, uh, Mark calls the the country of the Gerasenes, and there's this guy there who's living amongst the tombs. He's got an unclean spirit, and this guy, it's just, 
you imagine how miserable this guy is, right? He's No one is able to bind him because he just breaks the chains. He breaks any shackles they put on him. Night and day, he's crying out. I mean, he's living where there's de- where there's death all around. There's just dead people. He's crying out night and day, and he cuts himself with stones. So this guy who's just totally wrecked by this unclean spirit living in him, and as soon as the unclean spirit sees Jesus, he cries out, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God. Do not torment me. So again this this looming question of the identity of Jesus just who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him when demons see him they know exactly who he is and um and Jesus asks what is your name and he says my name is legion for we are many so now it's like a, a plurality this guy's just he's filled with demons and um and he begs that Jesus would send him into a nearby herd of pigs, which is a sizable herd, two thousand. So this is probably this is the the entire region, um, you know, making a serious living off of off of these pigs. Um, note that for the Israelites, pigs are unclean animals, and uh, Jesus allows the spirits to enter into the pigs, and immediately they pretty much run off a cliff into water and are drowned. The herdsmen, of course. <laughs> Are not too happy about this, and uh, they they run and they tell the village what happened, and the village comes back and they're afraid, right? And they beg Jesus to depart. They just saw this guy. They just saw this guy who 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 was filled with demons, right? Now sitting in his clothed and in his right mind, and 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 Jesus has helped him, and they want him to leave. Okay, not everyone who knows the power of Jesus wants him in their life. And um and so they beg him to depart. So the the, the end of this story, go, Jesus goes to this guy and he goes, "Go and uh go home, tell your friends how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy from you, on you." And he actually goes and he he tells this uh throughout the Decapolis, throughout this uh, series of of 10 uh, small cities there. Um what what had happened and he spreads the word there okay uh that's it for today uh again thank you very much for joining um and i look forward to tomorrow with you until then keep reading scripture keep being built up through the word of god and uh yeah so until then take care and bye-bye